We are continuing in our series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, and we've come now to a discussion, Jesus' discussion on the law. So listen as I read uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great, in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Praise God for his word. Let me pray for us uh, briefly one more time. Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. Revive us again at the sight of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I appreciate that. It helps me out. When, when was the last time you felt really misunderstood? Like someone was not picking up what you were putting down. If you've ever experienced that, uh, you can be sure Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Why is that? Because Jesus was constantly misunderstood. In fact, I think an accurate headline for his earthly ministry would be the misunderstood Messiah. From day one, people are confused about why he has come. They misunderstand his teaching. They criticize his actions. Peter at one point rebukes Jesus. He is constantly saying to his disciples, if you read through the Gospels, he's constantly saying to his disciples, do you not understand? Have you no understanding? E even the prospect of the Messiah suffering, which is the main thing that he's come to earth to do, is revolting to his disciples. At every turn, Jesus is misunderstood and, and there's really no clearer example of Jesus being misunderstood than how people misunderstood his view of the law. They had no box, no category to fit Jesus in. He, he taught the law with unparalleled authority, and yet he preached grace. He made it a point to hang out with sinners at various points, he seemed, and I highlight that word, seemed to nonchalantly break the law. And the people he critiqued the most were the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the so-called experts in the law. For many, they, they couldn't fit Jesus and a high view of the law together. So what about you? How do you view God's law. Let me help you diagnose your own heart and your own view of God's law. I'm going to say some words to you right now, 
And I want you to pay attention to what happens in your heart when I say these words. Are you ready? Submission. Commandments. Duty. Obedience. Are those words sweet to you? Or are they a little bitter? I think if we're honest, we know that those are Bible words. We know that those are good words. But to many of us, they sound negative. They sound graceless. They sound loveless. And yet Jesus says nothing could be further from the truth. As you know, we're continuing here through Jesus' sermon, and what I've told you so far is that he is telling his disciples about life in the kingdom of God. And this week, what Jesus is teaching us is that life in the kingdom of God is marked by loving obedience to God's law. Life in the kingdom is marked by loving obedience to the law of God. That is, to come into the kingdom is to come under the redemptive rule of the king and to joyfully submit and lovingly obey him. Now, you have to understand, this is the most fundamental change of posture that happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the most fundamental change in their posture toward God. We rejoice in knowing that God has all authority and we yield to him as the one who gets to call the shots in our lives. We no longer seek to rule ourselves, but to live under the righteous rule of our Savior and King by obeying his law. Is that you? Is God's law sweet to you? Do you rejoice to obey his law? Life in the kingdom is marked by a loving obedience to God's law. That's Jesus' argument here. And and to make his point, he's going to show us three things about the law, three components of the law. Are you ready for them? Guys with me this morning? It's... it's a little fair warning. It, this is a little bit of a, um, what's, the, what's a good word? We got to put your thinking hats on a little bit here this morning, okay? Three, three things about the law that Jesus is going to clue us into. The nature of the law, the demands of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. I'm telling you that life in the kingdom is marked out by the loving obedience to God's law. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to understand that, if you're going to have a life that's marked out by loving obedience to God's law, you've got to understand the nature of God's law, the demands of God's law, and the fulfillment of God's law. Let's look at the nature of of God's law. Jesus begins his discussion of the law by saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, it's important that you understand what's in view here when Jesus is talking about the law. You see that Jesus refers to the law as the law and the prophets. And later on, he just says the law, and then he says the commandments. This is shorthand for all of the Old Testament. And specifically, the commandments of God that come through in the Old Testament. But I think we can actually say a little bit more. 
this section is actually the beginning of a section uh, of six examples that Jesus gives. And they're going to begin, you have heard it said that, but I say to you. And in those examples, in each of those examples, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees who had misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misapplied the law. And in each of those examples, he is addressing what theologians have called the moral law. So that's what we're dealing here. We're, we're dealing with God's ethical standards for a righteous life. Now, historically, uh, theologians have divided the law into three components, the, the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law, or the civil law. Um, the civil law governing the geopolitical nation state of Israel, the ceremonial law governing the temple rituals and the cleansing rites. But Jesus here is, is, is not dealing with the ceremonial law or the judicial law. In fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, he's going to talk about how those parts of the law have indeed become obsolete, have, have been abolished. They have been, uh, they have been uh, removed because Jesus has fulfilled uh, all that they pointed to. But here he's talking about the moral law. And especially the moral law as it pertains and as it is communicated in the Ten Commandments. So he addresses murder and sexual immorality and marriage and oath-taking. And now, what I want you to see is that Jesus, when he comes to this discussion of the law, he says the law is permanent. The law is permanent. The moral commands of God made known in the whole of the Old Testament, are fixed. They are as enduring and constant as the heavens and the earth. Man-made laws change and pass away. Uh, when I was in college, uh, they changed the law so that you had to be 19 in order to buy cigarettes. And then in 2017, they changed the law again. And now you have to be 21 to buy cigarettes. I don't recommend that, uh, but I'm making a point here. Uh, even the highest land of the law has changed. You know, prior to 1865, it was legal to own slaves. In 1918, the sale of liquor was declared a criminal act. And then 1933, that, act was, uh, that uh, amendment was repealed and the sale of alcohol was again legalized. And think also, there are hundreds of civilizations who have had complex legal codes that have come and gone, have passed away. I think of, you know, the old Babylonian legal codes. to take you back to Western Civ. You remember Hammurabi's code? Uh, the, the, the laws that governed Athens and Sparta and, and the Roman Empire. All of these laws are gone. They're all just relics now. And uh, I don't want to offend any of you patriots out there, but there will come a day when the American Constitution... The highest law of this land will become nothing but a relic. It will pass away, but God's law will remain. God's law will stay. God's law will endure. Jesus says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. Some translations read, not one jot or tittle. In other words, not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a pen will pass away until all is accomplished. This is one of the reasons, in part, by the way, why we hold such a high view of Scripture. Because we want to view Scripture the way Jesus views Scripture. And the way Jesus views Scripture is he says, even the smallest stroke of a pen 
was put there by a sovereign God and therefore is binding and permanent. What naturally follows that is that God's law, because it is permanent, is still and forever binding. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The assumption and the explicit teaching of Jesus is that we are all under God's law, whether we realize it or not. We are subject to it. It is binding upon us. A person may reject the law, a person may break the law, a person may ignore the law, but this in no way alleviates their responsibility and their obligation to obey the law, to keep it, or to experience the penalty for transgressing it. You know, if you ignore the speed limit, and you go 85 miles an hour in a 45 miles an hour, and you pass a cop car, and he pulls you over, he is not going to be real impressed when you say to him, well, I didn't know. That's not going to get you off. And how much more so then with the God's law, especially when the scriptures tell us that the work of the law is written on everyone's heart, and we are all therefore accountable for it. It is the moral obligation of all God's creatures to submit themselves to his law and obey it. It's your duty. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, it should be your joy to obey God's law. The last thing is that this this passage implies the goodness of the law. The law is permanent. The law is binding. But this also implies the goodness of the law. Jesus doesn't explicitly say in this passage that the law is good, but it is the obvious underlying assumption and the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. We read it earlier in our call to worship. Do you remember the way that our service began this morning? What was David's view of the law? He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Brothers and sisters, does God law rejoice your heart? It says the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Is that how you view God's law? Is God's law to you soul reviving, wise making, heart rejoicing? more precious and valuable than gold, sweeter than the sweetest drippings of the honeycomb? You know, so often when the scriptures use this image of eating, it's an analogy for the hunger of our souls. So for example, when the psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? David says, my soul tastes and relishes in the goodness of God as I read his law. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, your law is my delight. Your law is my delight. Is that how you see the law? Is the law good to you? Consider briefly the goodness of the law in the life of the Christian. Can I tell you why the law is so good? The law is really good because the law shows to you God's character. 
Do you want to know who God is? Look into the law. See in the law a righteous God. See in the law a God who protects life. See in the law a God who is true. See in the law a God who is faithful. See in the law a God who is gracious and kind and compassionate. The law reveals the character of God. God's moral law is the eternal overflow of his character and nature. The law reveals to you the character of God, but the law also shows you the depth of your sin. Now, I'm telling you the law is good. Now, and track with me. That law shows you the depth of your sin. When you come to the law, you see the perfect holiness and righteousness of God's character, and you see yourself against the law, and it persuades you, it shows you, it should convince you of the depth of your sin. But in doing that, it does the, the greatest kindness it could ever do. It drives you to Christ. It drives you to Jesus, to see your need for one, to keep the law in your behalf. It drives you to Christ, to put your rest in him alone for a righteousness that you could never acquire on your own. See, the law is good. The law also instructs you how to live a life that pleases God. So I told you that one of the main things, in fact, the primary thing that happens, the change of posture that happens in someone who comes to faith in Christ is, is now they long to live their lives under him and to live their lives in a way that pleases him and obeys his law. They long to live their life in a way that God says, well, do, well done, good and faithful servant. And do you know how you know how to do that? God's law. God's law tells you and explains to you, this is the kind of life that is pleasing to God. So the law is good. It's permanent. It's binding. It's good. Life in the kingdom is marked by a loving obedience to the law of God. Now, kingdom, uh, kingdom people embrace the nature of God's law. But they also know and feel the reality of the law's demands on them. It's the second thing Jesus shows us. The law's demands. And simply put, I'm probably stating the obvious here. Simply put, the law demands that we lovingly obey it. Just let that settle in your heart for a minute. God's law demands that you lovingly obey it. It is that in response to the righteousness and goodness of God, our whole being would be animated by a love for him that works itself out in a life of obedience to his law for his glory. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is that throughout church history, people have come to the Sermon on the Mount and they've argued a bunch of different things about what Jesus is trying to do here and say about the law. Uh, they come to these six examples that I've mentioned. You know, you have heard it said that, uh, but I say to you. And they say uh, that Jesus is doing away with the Old Testament law. They say it's an outdated model that needs to be replaced. You know, like it's like the iPhone 12. It was good in its day, but now it needs to be uh, thrown out and replaced with the upgrade, with the, the iPhone 13 or 14 or whatever model they're on. Others have said, no, Jesus isn't getting rid of the Old Testament. 
but he is uh, intensifying the Old Testament. He's, he's adding on to it, right? It's the same phone. It just, it just needs an upgrade. The Old Testament, God told people not to murder. But now he's saying, you know, even being angry is uh, to, to make yourself liable to breaking the law. Now there is an internal dimension to God's law that means even being angry uh, is wrong. And still others have argued that what Jesus is doing here in the law is presenting an impossible ideal. That the only function of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, look, here's this impossible standard that you will never be able to fulfill, and, the, and its only function is to show you how sinful you are so that you'll come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Yet none of these three seem to really square with what Jesus is seeing here. Do you, those are the th- three main uh, other, I'm going to give you the, my view, and I think what is the uh, predominant view throughout church history, and I think the faithful view to Scripture, but those are the other three, that, that Jesus is getting rid of the Old Testament law and replacing it, that he's not getting rid of it, but he is intensifying it and making it more than it was in the Old Testament, or that Jesus is just presenting an impossible ideal so that you will uh, feel frustrated, not so that you will feel frustrated, but so that you'll see your, uh, your own need for forgiveness of sins and you will come to Jesus. Is there another option? None of these seem to square exactly with what Jesus is saying. Is there another option? I'm glad you asked. There is. Jesus is upholding the law. Jesus is upholding the law. Jesus has the highest view of the law, and so as one pastor put it, he's actually setting the record straight about the law. He's not changing it. He's not abolishing it. He's not intensifying it. No, he's upholding what God's intention for the law, and therefore what the the demands of the law have always been. And those demands have always been a loving obedience. The law demands a real obedience from the heart, an internal love that works itself out in joyful obedience. You see, Jesus here is actually responding to two ways that we tend to undermine the true demands of the law. Are you tracking with me? Are you with me? Okay. Jesus is, is undermined, or he's responded two ways that we tend to undermine the true demands of the law, uh, and they are twin errors that persist today. And you will find that one of these, that your heart bends more towards one of these, though you'll find traces of both. And here they are. Either we want to abolish the law, or we want to relax the law. Two twin errors. We either want to abolish the law or we want to relax the law. But Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. Now, why would he have to say that? Why would Jesus have to say, hey, guys, just to let you know, I just want to clarify, I did not come to abolish the law. Why does Jesus have to say that? Because some hear him preaching grace, eating with sinners. They hear of him disregarding the interpretations and the instructions of the elders and the experts in the law, and they conclude, well, the the law must be done then. The law's done. Now, I'm going to give you a theological word here. I want you to be a a theologically well-rounded congregation. I'm going to give you a theological word here. The word is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Uh, The antinomian is anti-namas. The word namas is law. They're anti-law. The antinomian. They believe God's law has, has no relevance for their life. 
And in the broadest sense, right, the whole secular world is antinomian, right? Because they reject the reality that God's law is good and that they are obliged to keep it. But there are even some who profess Christ who would fit under this antinomian category. They quote Paul in Romans 6.14 and they say, uh, we're not under law but under grace. And they falsely take him to mean that God's law then is now irrelevant, unimportant, or unrelated to the Christian life. They feel no responsibility to conform their lives to the law of God. They believe there can be a living faith without works. They are the ones Paul is responding to in Romans 6 when he says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And you know Paul's response to that. He says, may it never be. They are the ones who say to themselves, you know, God is a forgiving God. It's his job to forgive me. I I don't need to be concerned with fighting sin or conforming to the law because God's grace has saved me. Their hearts sing free from the law. Oh, blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. They presume upon God's grace, not knowing that it's his kindness that's meant to lead him to repentance. And to that way of thinking, to that way of thinking that the law is is, is gone, that it's irrelevant, that it's unrelated to the Christian life, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you find in your own heart a a, a disregard for the law of God? But there is another error. On the one side, there is antinomianism. On the other side, here's a word that you're probably more familiar with, is legalism, a relaxing of the law. Now, I'm guessing some of you are saying, "Er, wait, I thought legalism was when you were too serious about the law and too focused on the law. And you were too stringent about the law. But actually, if you think about it, legalism is reducing the law. It's lessening and relaxing the law to a list of external behaviors that you can accomplish in your own strength. That's what legalism is. You know, some people are like, okay, so where does Jesus fit in this? Is Jesus, there's antinomianism over here, you know, anti-law, and then there's legalism over here, and like, is, is Jesus somewhere in the middle? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Not at all. Je- Jesus isn't even on this spectrum, right? Jesus has such a high view of the law. His view of the law is that the law comes to bear on every person and says, its demand and its requirement of you is not only external conformity, but external conformity that flows out from an internal love for God. That was the problem of the Pharisees, right? You know, when Jesus um, uh, is taking aim at uh, 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 his, his theological adversaries, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. Who do you think he's referring to? He's got people in mind. He's, he says, there are people that are going to try and relax the law and they're going to not teach you to do what it commands. Verse 20 tells us the people that he has in mind are the scribes and the Pharisees. The Jesus assessment of the scribes and the Pharisees is that they're relaxing the law. By Jesus' day, the, 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 the 
to give you an example of this, the, the prominent Jewish rabbis had started collecting sermons and interpretations of the Mosaic law, and they put it into a book called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah uh, was chiefly a, a way to help Jews know how to follow the law, but in effect what it did was it added layer upon layer of regulation. So for example, God's law teaches that we ought to keep the Sabbath holy. The Mishnah created 39 separate categories for work. Right? You can't, you can't work on the Sabbath, right? To keep the Sabbath holy. The Mishnah said, okay, here are the 39 categories of work. And then under those categories, there were subcategories and subcategories of subcategories. The Pharisees prided themselves on being the ones who kept not only the Mosaic law, but all these regulations. And as they kept those regulations, they looked down their nose at those who didn't and presented themselves as superior. But, but you have to see, what, ha- what have the Pharisees and the scribes actually done? They reduced the law. They lessened the law. They relaxed the law to certain external behaviors. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then you've kept the law without regard for the internal heart posture towards God. And you can no more uphold the law of God by mere external rule keeping than you could love your wife by merely buying her flowers every week. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Right? Everyone knows that to love your spouse is complex and deep, and it's an internal and an external thing. And if you're a husband and you think that all it means to love your wife is to do the external things, you're not going to have a great marriage. That's what the Pharisees had done. They had reduced the demands of God's law to following a series of man-made regulations. And by the way, this is what churches do when they Uh, when they regulate Christian behavior beyond what is plain in the scriptures. The the way that you can know this kind of thinking has crept in is when you start looking down at one of your brothers or your sisters because they don't share your conviction about a particular matter that's not clearly addressed in scripture, right? Because they homeschool or because they put their kids in public school or because they send their kids to private school or because they watch certain shows that you wouldn't watch, or because they drink alcohol, or because they shop for organic foods, or because they play on sports teams. It's, it's a relaxing of the law to bear external conformity and neglecting of the law's demands on our heart and will and love. And this is what Jesus means when he says in verse 20, you need a righteousness that exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus, this is, this is a verse that often gets misunderstood. Jesus is not saying the Pharisees have a, a pretty good righteousness. It's a righteousness that's pretty good as it goes, but you need to have one that's even better. You need a righteousness that's impossible and unattainable because even the Pharisees couldn't achieve it, and that's why you need Jesus. What he's saying is, you need a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees because the righteousness that the Pharisees have is defective and broken. Their righteousness is just built on external conformity to man-made regulations and a relaxing of the law. 
But the righteousness of Jesus' followers is a real righteousness because it comes from real internal love for God. It comes from a heart transformed that now thinks and loves God and trusts him and depends on him and has a genuine desire to please him with their lives. Brothers and sisters, that kind of life is a righteous life that surpasses, that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And it's that kind of righteousness that marks out those who belong to the kingdom of God. Now, where does that life come from? Where does that righteousness come from? You see, this is our problem, isn't it? Because when when we really truly stand under the demands of the law, there's nowhere for us to hide. The law exposes us, exposes our hearts as rebels. And when Jesus, of course, is asked to summarize the law, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Who can stand up underneath the demands of the law? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, if your life would be marked out by this kind of exceeding righteousness that lovingly obeys God's law, you need to see the nature of the law. You need to see the demands of the law, but most importantly, you need to see the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Now that word fulfill is complex. It has a couple dimensions to it. It undoubtedly identifies Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows. But to fulfill also means to carry out or to hold up or to confirm. Now, how does Jesus do this? Well, first we see that, and we'll see this more in the coming weeks, that Jesus does this in his teaching. As he exposes the way in which the so-called Experts had mangled God's law into something he never intended and then upholds God's true intention for the law. Jesus comes to set the record straight on the law and to uphold it as the gracious and kind commands for our lives that they are. So he upholds it and fulfills it in his teaching, but he fulfills it in his life as well. He fulfills it in his teaching, but he fulfills it in his life. You know, Jesus is the only one He's the only one who perfectly obeys and obeyed the law of God. He says to his disciples, my food and my sustenance is to do the will of my father. He says, the son only does what he sees the father doing. Just a a few chapters earlier in Matthew 3, we're in Matthew 5, a few chapters earlier in Matthew 3, Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And now you need to know that in order to embrace baptism, what you were symbolically saying was that I need to be cleansed. In other words, to submit to baptism was to admit I'm a sinner. 
in need of cleansing waters. Now, understandably, John says to Jesus, would you have me baptize you? You should be the one baptizing me. But do you know what Jesus says to him? Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, God's good requirement of his people was that they receive the waters of baptism. And Jesus says, therefore, I must obey him. He is the one who perfectly and fully obeys the law, loving his heavenly father, loving his neighbors, loving his enemies. Listen, consider Jesus, not one stray motive. Never one stray motive. Not one hint of selfishness, not one speck of hypocrisy. Nothing but true, full, complete, loving obedience to God. His is a perfect righteousness before God. But it's not just that, is it, right? In his life, he fulfills all that the law pointed to. You see, the law was always meant to point to the coming of Christ. Everything you read, and again, I I have in view Jesus' understanding of the law as the whole Old Testament. That every part of the law was meant to point to the coming of Christ. In, in one of many confrontations with the Pharisees, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. See, all the law and the prophets whisper his name. And so he has come to fulfill all they foretold. Brothers and sisters, he is the better Adam who never fails to stand up under temptation. He is the promised offspring who crushes the head of the serpent. He is the better Cain, the true elder brother who lays his life down for his brothers and sisters, who says, I am my brother's keeper. He is the better Noah who pioneers a perfect new creation world. He is the greater ark in which we can hide from the storm of God's judgment. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He is the greater Moses who led his people out of bondage to sin into the promised land of eternal life and fellowship with God. He is the greater temple who is God with us. He is the greater sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat who takes upon himself all the sins of his people and is crucified outside the city. He is the greater high priest who stands in our place and represents us and advocates for us before the Father. He is the rock in the desert who split open and gives streams of living water. He's the true manna from heaven, the bread of life that nourishes and satisfies our souls. He is Moses' staff lifted up in the wilderness as he lifted up on the cross so that all who see and believe the Son of Man have eternal life. He's the greater Joshua. Who saves God, who saves God's people from all their enemies, especially from sin and death and Satan. He's the greater David, right? The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, the one who slays the giant of Satan and our sin. He's the king of kings who rules and reigns over his people in righteousness. He's the fourth man in the fire who stands with us against all our enemies and rescues us against the fires of God's judgment. He's the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's the king whom God has set on his holy hill in Psalm 2. He's the shield of God's people in Psalm 3. He's our peace and safety in Psalm 4. He's our refuge and protection in Psalm 5. 
He's our deliverer in Psalm 6, the righteous judge who destroys all evil in Psalm 7. He's the one whose name is righteous judge and majestic in all the earth in Psalm 8. He's our stronghold in times of trouble in Psalm 9. He's the eternal king over all the nations in Psalm 10. He is the greater Hosea, who is the the faithful bridegroom who buys back his adulterous bride. He's the suffering servant who bears our griefs and sorrows, who is pierced for our iniquities, who is crushed under the judgment of God. He's the lion of Judah. He's the root of Jesse. He's the Israel of God, the promised Messiah, the conquering king. He's the sufficient savior. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. So Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching, in his life. But see how he fulfills the law in his death. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Don't you know what happened on the cross? See, on the cross, the guilt of your law breaking, the guilt of your failure to meet the demands of the law fell upon him. His life was that of law-keeping, and yet he died a law-breaker. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why? Because on the cross, he was taking your identity as a law-breaker upon himself and standing in your place to bear the punishment for your law-breaking. Look, if you don't get this, then you don't understand the gospel. God is a just judge, and therefore he cannot overlook or sweep sin under the rug. You stand before him condemned, but Jesus Christ comes into the world to fulfill the law and says, Father, lay all the guilt, lay all the punishment, lay all the demands of the law upon me and all the curse for breaking the law upon me and I will discharge all of it, charge it all to my account. And on the cross, God spends his divine wrath for sinful law-breaking on Christ instead of you so that he can be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And on the third day, he rose again, demonstrating that God's wrath had been satisfied, that the penalty had been paid so that all who trust in him have their guilt removed. By faith in Christ, your sin becomes him and becomes his and he pays for it at the cross and his righteous life becomes yours and you are counted among his children, right? No longer slaves, but sons and heirs of the promise. You see this transaction in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He fulfills the law in his teaching and in his life and in his death. But now here's the main point. This is what I want you to see, and this is where I want you to, where we're going to end. He fulfills the law in his disciples. He fulfills the law in his teaching, in his life, in his death, and he fulfills the law in his disciples. Those who are united to him by faith are transformed. They receive new birth from above. God writes the law on their hearts. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and what we read earlier in Ezekiel 37, that they would have David, the greater David, as their king forever, that they would be careful to walk in his rules and to obey his statutes. He's put his spirit in them. 
and makes them careful to obey his rules. Romans 8, 3 puts it this way. For God has done, we read it earlier, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You, you see, what happens when the kingdom of God explodes into your life through the gospel, God, by his spirit, breaks the heart of stone, breaks the heart of rebellion, and makes it flesh so that you now desire from the core of your being to live a life that truly pleases God. Not external conformity, not bare rule keeping, but a heart that loves God and wants to please him and so loves the law of God because it tells me this is how I do it. It is those lyrics from the old hymn from William Cooper. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's what we're talking about. When you see Christ fulfilling the law in your place, when you hear his pardoning voice, when you see the law's demands against you and the punishment that you should have as a result of it, and then Christ's pardoning voice comes to you and you are transformed from a slave into a child, now the law becomes sweet. Now the law's not duty. It's not, it's not bare external conformity. Now the law is choice. Now the law is the, the way I get to please my heavenly Father. You see, life in the kingdom is marked by a loving obedience to the law of God, not as the basis for our salvation. You need to hear me say that this morning, right? When Jesus says, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying you obey the law or else. He's saying the mark of a person that is in the kingdom is someone who obeys the law from the heart because they have been transformed by God through the gospel of his grace. Our law keeping is not the basis of our salvation, but it is the necessary response of our salvation. Because we have a father who loves us and so we love him and want to obey him. By God's grace in Christ, we are empowered to live righteous lives that far surpass the shoddy and dysfunctional righteousness of the Pharisees. All for the glory of his name. Jesus Christ said, I did not come into the world to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as you rest in him, as you look to him, the one who fulfills the law, he strengthens you and empowers you and gives you grace that you might live truly a righteous life that pleases him for his namesake. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, indeed, we, we thank you for your law. We thank you that it shows us who you are and it shows us our need for Christ and that it drives us to the foot of the cross where we hear Jesus' pardoning voice. That our sins have been paid for, that he has accomplished a righteousness for us that we could never accomplish on our own. And that by hearing that voice, that voice pierces our heart and transforms us and makes us, takes us from slaves, from children of wrath into sons and daughters of you so that we long from our hearts to live lives that are obedient, lives that please you. And we know that when we fail, that when we sin, we have a faithful advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
who advocates for us on our behalf and guarantees us that our salvation is secure in him. And as we rest in him, we are strengthened all the more to live lives of righteousness. Lord, may that be the case. May we live lives of righteousness that the world might see you and glory in your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.